This is The Adoption Wait, a podcast brought to you by Adopting.com. I am your host, Lacey Richter, author, business owner, and a mom of two through domestic infant adoption who has endured the adoption wait five times over. Hello, and thank you for joining the Adoption Wait podcast. Today's guest is Katherine Russell. Catherine is a licensed social worker, the director of Absolute Love Adoptions, the creator and host of the Absolute Love podcast, and the creator of a new course she just launched called The Tale of Two Mothers, The Power Balance Between Birth Parents and Adoptive Parents in Adoption. That is quite the list, Catherine. Hello and welcome to the Adoption Wait podcast. Hi, Lacey. Thanks for having me. Um, Up until now, our podcast guests have all been adoptive mothers sharing their experiences about the adoption wait. But today, I'm pretty excited. We get to listen and learn from the experience of someone who is always in the wait. Um, So she's, I'm going to call her a wait professional. (laughs) She's Um, always walking adoptive moms, expectant moms, and birth moms through the adoption wait and the adoption experience. So Catherine has a lot of firsthand experience on supporting others while they wait. And I have to tell you, Catherine, right after we got off the phone for our pre-interview, I went on a walk and I was like, well, let me listen to one of um, Catherine's podcast episodes. And there was an episode you did with a a birth mother. Her name was Michelle. And I loved hearing her story. I immediately got home and emailed it to my oldest daughter's birth mother because I thought it would be a great listen for her. And I loved how open and honest and confident Michelle was in her story. And then I loved how supporting and loving you were in that conversation with her. Thank you. I I love the podcast. I think it's become more about me learning from these women than it is the podcast itself. We actually had started that podcast a couple of years ago with um, Mallory. She was our first episode and we had kind of known each other loosely for a little while. Um, she had placed many years ago when I was kind of working peripherally with her, um, but I didn't really know her story well. And we just kind of connected one day. We started talking and I thought, people need to hear her story that you just don't hear these birth mom stories in a really raw and vulnerable way. A lot of them feel um, like they've been kind of hyper edited just to send a certain message. So Mallory and I talked for several hours and of course, you know, you only get an hour of it on the, the podcast. So for me, it's been just really enlightening to just sit and listen and talk and really absorb uh, the lessons that these women have learned through their placement process. So thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed Michelle's episode. I did. And I have a lot of episodes to catch up on, but thankfully I go for walks quite frequently. So I I have a, yeah, I'm ready to go. So today, Catherine and I are going to discuss how understanding that a balance in power in the adoptive parent and expectant parent relationship can affect how adoptive parents are showing up and how we are respecting and honoring expectant parents during and even after the adoption wait. So Catherine, 
we always kind of start at the beginning. So I need you to give me the short, and I'm putting that in quotes, <laughs> the short story of how you came to be involved in the adoption community. Sure. I, I think I get that question a lot because I'm not a birth mom. I'm not adopted and I'm not an adoptive parent. And I think in this space, especially professionally, lots of people are one of those things. So for me, when I started getting those questions, it was kind of that, yeah, why, why am I here? How did I get here? And <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I am somebody who thinks that the world kind of has messages and paths and kind of puts you in the right place if you lean into that. And I I think for me, when I was a kid in middle school, we had this assignment, you could write about anything in the world. And for some reason, I wrote about Romanian orphanages, which is not something I knew about, saw, I don't know where I got that from. So that was kind of my first, uh, in, I guess, the introduction into what adoption looked like. And then I was, I studied psychology, I did some traveling with Semester at Sea, and I remember being at an orphanage in Vietnam, and there was a little girl in this really dark, long, cold hallway, and there were no adults around. And I still, to this day, I'm like, I don't understand what was happening there. Um, but I remember we sat with her for a little while, and... Um, it just dawned on me. Like I had this beautiful whole childhood and this little girl got that and in this cold, dark hallway. And the, just the, the juxtaposition of those two lives was just shocking for me. And at that moment, I remember thinking, this is where I need to be is making choices around children whose lives can benefit from, from some, some adult coming in and helping and, and adoption was really in that situation, what made sense. Um, so that kind of set me on this path of going back to grad school, studying specifically for social work, wanting to work in adoption. Um, and then I, when I graduated, I worked for an agency, got my feet on the ground like that. And then now I've been in this space for, you know, over 10 years and, this whole idea of I was put in this path for some reason and that that paper in middle school was was for a reason. I then learned as an adult that my grandmother was adopted and that her mother was sent away to a maternity home in Syracuse, which oddly, that's where I went to school. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, the Ann Fessler book, The Girls Who Went Away, um, but I had read that many years ago, didn't know about my own family connection to this experience. Um, so really just putting all these pieces together that my own family had this wound of my great grandmother being sent away to deliver a baby who she placed for adoption. And I see the, uh, the effects of that on my father, on his siblings, on my generation. Um, so I think that all these kind of behind the scenes things had been working all along to put me in this space where I am now as a, a professional. And I love this space. I, I really love the work that I do. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Um, it's if, And if you don't believe in all these things working behind the scenes now, after that story, you probably do. <laughs> because that's, Sometimes it, it it will even be something that just seems really unrelated and you and it's this piece of the puzzle and you don't figure it out until later. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's why that happened. And I did that. And here I am now. That's my life. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to dive in real deep early because I remember, even though it was 10 years ago, 
how carefully I was trying to tread in my relationship with my daughter's birth mother. Like there are a lot of relationships throughout our lives that take a lot of work and a lot of balance, but this one has to be the one that um, takes the most thought and effort, the most flexibility and compassion. And I can look back and I can see some things that I did well, and I can see a lot of things I did not so well. And my husband and I, we were matched with my oldest daughter's birth mother very, very early in her pregnancy. I, I don't know that this even happens anymore, but she was 17 weeks pregnant. So that is to say I had a lot of time to make mistakes. <laughs> so Catherine, what are the biggest mistakes you see waiting adoptive parents are making in their relationships with expectant parents during their adoption wait? I think the the nature of adoption being people coming to fill a space that's been full of such pain, you know, infertility is typically what brings people to adoption and that is not an easy journey. And so I think you have this, this dynamic of people coming to adoption with a lot of desperation. And so a lot of the decisions that they make, um, they're, they're motivated by that and how could they not be? Um, but I think because of that, their, their choices are then sometimes reactive or selfish or aggressive even. So there's these, a lot of, a lot of these wounds that are then happening because of this just place that you're coming from. So I think, that is one of the mistakes. I think not recognizing the path that got you here and really working through those wounds and trying to understand how that path through infertility or however you got to the space is affecting you. I think a lot of families in home study will say, oh yeah, we're fine. We've grieved that. It's fine. We've talked to each other about it, but it's let's so- just go. Let's just go forward. Oh, let's just keep moving. Yeah. And so often people, when I ask, you know, have you seen a therapist? Have you talked to a counselor? They all say, no no, we don't need that. We're good. Um, but that doesn't stop hurting or happening. You just continue to live these wounds and make choices based on that place of pain and hurt. Um, and really this void that's there. Um, and then that continues through parenting. So that's a huge mistake. I think just not doing that work before adopting to recognize what you've been through, especially related to fertility. Um, and then I think another huge one is, the way that families approach children in this space that they are hoping to adopt is often leading with this idea of ownership. Um, and you see that in just language people use, right? Like they'll tell their friends that they're adopting, um, that their baby's coming home on a certain day when it's months or weeks or whatever out. Um, and there's so many things that can happen, but primarily that's not your child yet. This is still somebody else's child. Right. So there's a lot of that, my child, uh, talking about this child as though they've already come home, naming the child, having baby showers. Um, and I think even using language like talking to people about your child's birth mom and saying my birth mom or our birth mom as though mm -hmm. you own her, she's a vessel. Um, so I think a lot of that, while it feels like it could just be looked at as semantics, it's really reflective of a larger idea, a larger feeling that there's entitlement to this woman's child in some way. Yeah. And I think that's often encouraged in this space. There's a lot of professionals who don't help families identify this language and give them language to replace it with. Um, and, and again, I think in this space, it's a lot of until you've been told or until you learn differently 
of course you're going to be making these mistakes. Of course you're going to be coming from this place. It makes sense. It's just that there's a lot of work to that can be done to to put you in a different frame of mind, a different coming at this from a different perspective. So that's my thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so interesting because yeah, I made a lot of those mistakes. Like, what are your thoughts on like, it, you know, I was never told um, not to say our birth mother, mother, you know, I didn't have a lot, no one was educating me. And also no one was educating um, my child's birth mother on what she could and did and did not have to do. And so I remember she was calling me mom from very early on. And I don't know if that was just her way to sort of um, make her way through the process by thinking of me as mom very early on. You know, a lot of people have baby showers. Maybe the expectant mom is there. Maybe she is okay with that. Um, Is it okay to kind of let them lead or should we encourage them to kind of pull back on those type things that, that show ownership for one side or the other? I think both are fine, but I do think giving the expectant mom the space to think about those things and then make choices for herself that she feels are best and then to change her mind. I think that is how you get through that space. I do think a lot of expectant moms are not educated about their right to change their mind, about you know, their, their right to name the child, their right to spend time with the child. I don't think a lot of that is there. So I do think as an adopting parent, if you are in a match where you're feeling that, that maybe mom doesn't, maybe she is doing that, right? Calling you mom, saying your child, saying things that are, are giving you ownership. How much harder will that be for her if she delivers and decides she wants to parent? She now has you so invested in this and, and it becomes a lot murkier. Um, however, I have worked with moms where they need to do that in order to get through this process. And that's what they're doing to protect and to cope. Um, so I think there's no right way to do it. I think the key is talking about it, not avoiding those hard conversations. Yeah. Good point. I think we're going to go back to open communication and discussing Mm -hmm. these things is always the answer (laughs) and the right way to go. So, you know, I only, I only met a couple social workers and a couple adoption professionals while we were waiting. Um, And because that time was such a blur for me, I was so focused on becoming a parent Mm -hmm. that I never stopped to think about how challenging and how important the social workers relationship with both the expectant parent and the adoptive parents must be. So you play such an important role there and there's such a balance of, of, of helping both sides. So tell me like the story or the moment when you decided you had to create this course to help educate others because you have a view of both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that once I recognized that value there that I was seeing from a more neutral place because I was not a birth mom and I was not adopted and I'm not an adoptive parent as a social worker who's trained in family dynamics and communication and mediation, I could see kind of this bird's eye view of this relationship. And it it was almost this, as soon as I saw it, I thought, okay, this is the space where you can push in and help families and expectant parents understand the dynamics of this relationship so that they can make different choices. And it's it's kind of the, the same old, same old story because it's it's played out in every placement I've done, 
every, uh, I do a lot of home studies. And then of course we do the post placements. So I hear this story then as well in those post placements. Um, and we do solace gift boxes for birth moms. And I often then get to have some conversations with birth moms that I didn't previously know. And again, the same story plays out so many times. And it's basically this idea that you go in and you express what you want with openness and you express how you want this, this post-placement relationship to look. And then it doesn't look anything like that. (laughs) And people get overwhelmed and they kind of freak out because they don't really know how to do openness. We talk about it constantly and we're always encouraging openness and we're expecting that from people, but we're not really teaching people how to do it. So the first instance somebody has where there's maybe a disagreement or maybe just this feeling that comes up where you're not quite sure how to handle it, it all falls apart then because again, nobody's prepared you for how to do this. So I had a I had a particularly challenging placement um way back when. And it was it was that. It was that, you know, the family expressed what they wanted, the expectant mom expressed what she wanted, they connected, it was lovely. And then afterwards there was this really intense behavior coming from the adoptive family that was very territorial. And it didn't make sense because they knew birth mom. They loved birth mom. They said very positive things about birth mom, but they were terrified to actually have a relationship with her. And it all came from a place of, we don't know her well. We're terrified she's going to want this child back and we're protecting ourselves from that. But they didn't understand how the way that they were acting was then causing such stress for birth mom. Birth parents are trying really hard these first couple months to just get back to life, a life that feels good and making sense of what that looks like is really, really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of of desire to connect with adoptive family just to get that confirmation that their kid's okay, um, that they made the right choice, that the family is who they said they were. And when families resist that because they feel like that's threatening or yeah. interfering with something, then that child ultimately suffers, but so does birth mom. And it's really like, again, all these things are happening and I can see this, but the people in the relationship are in the relationship. So of course you can't see it. Um, so when that happened, it, it was a two parties that were um, nearby. So I got to see both of them more often. Um, and as soon as I connected, like this is what's happening. And we totally missed the boat before placement on teaching them you're going to have these feelings. This is how you push through these feelings. This is how your behavior in regards to these feelings affects other people. So that that for me was like, this makes makes perfect sense to teach families about this early. And then so much of this stuff Before. doesn't happen. Yeah. 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 And there's nothing out there. I looked and there's not resources out there specifically talking about that, right? Like yeah. I placed with you, you then all of a sudden feel like you have to, you know, hackles are up and you have to protect this child from me. There's nothing out there telling you what that is and how to get through that. So I made it. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I mean, I can't imagine the value that could bring to be prepared for that exact situation because you're seeing, like you said, this is a story, same story, same story. You're seeing it happen and to be prepared, like, Hey, you're going to feel like this. And she's going to feel like this. And this is how you navigate it. Because 
you know, as an adoptive parent, I can see that like you get home, it's a newborn baby. And all of a sudden you're like getting a text or some kind of communication. Can I get a picture? Can I get it this? And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm just trying to stay up all night and feed this baby. Like if you could understand the two sides beforehand, there could be so much value in helping in that relationship. Absolutely. So you sent me an outline of the course and um, there were a couple industry terms in there. And I was like, Ooh, I don't even know. I don't know what that means. It sounds like social worker speak. So tell <laughs> us like a summary in like layman's terms. What is your course about and how it's good? How, I mean, we kind of already talked about it, but how's it going to help waiting adoptive parents? Yeah. So the breakdown of the course is that I teach about what power is in the first place, because we talk about it, but people don't feel good when you talk about you being in a position of power in any relationship. You want to feel like you're, you're a member to a relationship, not like you're a position of authority, but we all carry these roles and responsibilities and power is ingrained in all of them. So I help people really understand what power looks like how they acquire it, how they use it, how they might abuse it. And then I break down each stage of, of this. So for, for moms coming to this place, one hoping to adopt, one considering placement, what is, what's her power? What does that look like? What kind of behaviors might you see? And then we work through that same dynamic in the match stage, in the hospital stage, and then in the placement stage, and then post-placement. So we work through all the, the steps of this process and the different types of displays of power you might see or be doing yourself, mm -hmm. and then the impact of some of those, really just to help people understand in this scenario, uh, like let's say at the hospital, what are some common things you're going to see? And then if I see that, what can I do? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot of really concrete examples, lots of storytelling about experiences I've had in the field, experiences that have been shared with me in the field. Um, and then I give some information about what to do. What are some tasks you can work on now to really help change the way you see things? And for me, that all really circles around this idea of ownership, which we talked a little bit about openness, and then the value of that post-adoption contact agreement. So all of those are kind of the anecdote to having really disequal relationships. Um, and then there's a, there's a workbook that accompanies the course. And I did this because there's a lot of journal prompts because Ooh, I, I love a good journal. <laughs> and hearing <laughs> me talk about it is great, but having that space to then pause the lesson and sit and actually think about how that made you feel, what that brought up in you, um, your true feelings about some of this really heavy stuff that I'm asking in the course. I think yeah. that piece is really essential to, to changing perception through the course. So um, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I <Yeah>. think it's <laughs> really helpful. <laughs> yeah. So I guess in, you know, I'm going to say I'm a control freak. So when I hear you say power, I'm thinking of, my, like when I was in the wade and through sort of my, um, my relation, it's like, what do I have control of? And what do I not have control of? And what do I have the right to control or have power over? And what do I not have the right to control or power? And I think unless someone tells us this, we just kind of step up and, and assume things. Um, so yeah, this is, this is, sounds like it's going to be incredible. So in pre-interview, you and I were talking about how everything could change. And we're talking about that now. If adoptive parents understood that they don't need to exert all this power and control over the, over the situation, um, 
And I think adoptive parents show up in this way because we have so many fears and we're so desperate and we haven't been able to get this one thing in life and create our family. So how do we get adoptive parents to step back and invest some time in healing themselves? Like you said, because no one asked me when I was going into the adoption process, Hey, have you seen a therapist? Have you resolved your infertility grief? Which I don't believe there is a resolve there, but there's still a process. Mm -hmm. No one asked me that. So how do we get adoptive parents to do this so that they can go into the situation um, better prepared? When I created the course, I did it for adopting families, but there is so much value for professionals because I truly think families can do all this work to learn this stuff. But if their professionals aren't also reinforcing this or saying, here's this course you should be taking to learn these things, we're not really going to get anywhere because you're going to take what you learned. You're going to go to the hospital to meet your baby and something's going to happen. And your, your professional that's there with you is going to be advising you in a way that's not how the course has taught you to act. So really until all parties are on board and the the agencies that you're working with, the attorneys that you're working with, unless they have that same philosophy and they've done the work to understand the importance of these conversations, it's still going to be very, very challenging. I, I think, however, I'm always surprised, always in a really good way. Um, our, our home study process is really heavy on education because of this, because I want families to be able to say, somebody asked me about my infertility and somebody asked if I had worked through some of that. Um, and it was an eye opener for me. I realized I didn't do that and I needed to, and I did. And so then the whole journey through adoption is so much better. So I want to be the one that asked those questions. Um, but I, I think that the ability to get people on board is literally just in a place of safety. This is never a place of judgment because we understand why you're here. We understand how you got here. We understand this range of emotions that adopting families are experiencing. Um, and really the unfairness of the fact that you can't control your fertility. We, we feel that. So it's a safe place to then come and say, I have all these feelings and your provider to say, yeah, I'm sure you do. Those are totally normal. Yeah. And I think validation of the fact that what your experience, whatever it is that you're feeling about this really unique and hard stage in your life is they're good. They're fine. You don't have to you know, apologize for them or anything. So I think really creating this place of safety for families is first. And then I think saying, here's some information about this, take some time to listen and learn and think, and then let's talk again. And inevitably there's growth in that. Because most families will say, I just didn't know. I literally didn't know. Yeah, Why, totally. would Why would you? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you work in this space, th these are not conversations you're having. Right. And I'm just saying, I'm like, you're adoption professional, you're professional, it's your pro. It's like, they're giving you, they should be giving you the pro tips and what they, and what a great resource your course could be for adoption professionals. Cause I imagine um, as a social worker and adoption professional, a lot of time is spent handholding and coaching them through these situations. But if you could front load them with this course, like here it is, Catherine has created it, watch this. And then we can walk through this process and talk about this process. It would be so much work done on the front end um, yeah. So adoption professionals, if you're listening, you need to get in touch with Catherine for this course for your waiting families. <laughs>
Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many memories of my adoption weight. Like I say, it's a blur, but every time I start doing these podcasts, I can remember so many vivid details. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm now thinking about all the things I could have done differently, but you don't know what you don't know. You know, there's that saying. And I think your podcast is also an incredible resource because you have so many interviews with birth moms sharing their stories. And before I entered adoption, I didn't know anyone who had placed their child for adoption. And I know nowadays, you know, I'm kind of dating myself. That's different because you've got this growing online community. We've got lots of education and birth moms showing up in spaces to tell us their stories. Um, and I think if I would have had that, I would have probably, I would have showed up differently during the wait. So what could waiting adoptive parents who aren't matched yet, what could they be doing right now to show up differently when they are matched? For me, that answer is very solidly learn, connect, learn. listen, um, your wait could be who knows how long, five seconds or five years. And yeah. in that time, <laughs> which is terrifying, but in that yeah. time, there's time to really be assessing. Maybe you didn't get that work presented to you for your home study. Maybe nobody has asked you any of these questions yet. So this is a great time to do it. Just, you know, the, the community, like you said, has grown insanely over the last few years. Social media has really allowed us to get to people's stories that we never would have heard before. And I really think that taking that time to find birth mother perspectives, listen to them, think about the way that they've experienced adoption, because it's so different than the way you did in many ways, but it's also so similar. So I think drawing some parallels between the women placing their children and the women adopting is really important. I think listening to adopted people's stories is essential because ultimately everything that we're doing is their life. We are setting this foundation for their real life. So it matters so much. But I ask people in home study, have you heard a birth mom story? Have you heard an adopted person story? Have you heard another adopting person story? Um, do you know somebody personally that's done any yeah. of those things? And almost always the answer is no. Um, so I do think that this is a fabulous time to start building some of those networks and really listening to what other people have experienced. Um, yeah, I think it really does. It changes the way people think about the entire process and approach the entire process, hearing from other people who have done it. No story is the same. Just because, you know, one mom says this happened does not mean it's going to happen for you, but it certainly does give you a lot more space to say, oh, okay, if this happens, then I, I kind of have a sense that this could happen. And if it does, I know what to do. And yeah. that's not there if you're not doing that listening and learning and digging in. So yeah. And, <laughs> and listen to multiple stories. Cause that's yeah. one thing you just said is no story is the same. And I remember um, I had some friends who were a little bit older than me and they had already gone through the adoption process. And I was like, Oh, like I got this. I know somebody who's done this and they've shared their experience with me. My experience was completely different than theirs. Like it's mm -hmm. so different. So it's like, don't expect your experience to be like the others and listen to as many stories as you can. Um, I want to talk about how adoption is a lifelong journey because this yes. is not something adoptive parents think about when they're waiting or they have a newborn baby. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm going to be completely transparent, when I was waiting to adopt, I was so focused on getting that little baby home and having a family. And I now know that was like 
not the thing to focus on. And that if I could have come into that experience, understanding more about expected parents and realizing that it was a lifelong journey. My kids are now seven and 10. I'm still early in, um, but this is a lifelong relationship. You know, what we put on paper as our openness agreement 10 years ago is completely different today. These things, I think that's that's a very um, misunderstood topic, like these openness agreements. And I don't even know if they happen today, but like we are in a relation, you can't write down what a relationship's going to look like on a piece of paper. You can mm -hmm. talk about your expectations and your vision and what you want, but you know, it's, it's going to look and evolve so differently. So mm -hmm. you think that the sort of zoomed in focus of adoptive parents, like, I just want to have a baby. I just want to get this baby home. And all they're thinking about is baby. Mm hmm does that affect how they show up and how can we get them to realize that these are lifelong relationships and they don't end at the hospital. They actually kind of start there. Yeah. I think this laser focus, this tunnel vision is almost everybody. And I'll tell you one of the first questions I get when someone will call and say, Hey, I need a home study. Here are my questions about the process. First, how much does it cost? And second, how long will this take? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the one of the things that I've done in our home study process is really amped up the expectations for families to do education. This is a passion of mine because in many states, there are no regulations about the number of hours families need before they're approved to adopt. So in a lot of states, and, and I'm guilty of this in previous years, it was literally a checklist. It's saying you have a home, you let's see your marriage certificate, get your clearances, you're financially yep. stable, you're good to go. And then you got this gold stamp that says you're approved to adopt. You're but ready. Yeah. And you're ready <laughs> to be a parent, but you have nothing about what adoption looks like. And then the work begins when you bring this child home. And then you realize that there are massive points in time through an adopted person's life that adoption matters so much. And I think that is profound because I still hear families saying, you know, oh, my 15 year old, you know, we don't do these things that are recommended about, you know, sharing about uh, birth family and, you know, doing all these things that really help adopted people feel whole. We don't do any of those. And our kid is fine. And I hear this all the time. And I think people really miss the mark that adoption is not stagnant. It's not like you can check in with your 15 year old and say, oh, they're fine. Developmentally, 15 year olds might not be caring a whole lot about their adopted identity, but maybe at 18, they are maybe at 20, they are maybe at 22. They absolutely hate the fact that they were adopted. And then at 22 and a half, it's totally joyous for them. But this, this, the fact that it changes over their lifetime and your responsibilities to them and helping them process these feelings, get connected to other people who understand that is your life. That becomes your whole life. And we say this, that, that adoptive parenting is different than biological parenting. And the, the, when you say that to someone, they recoil, like, you know, and I think it's offensive in some ways for people because again, this infertility path, you have to do so much to get to parenthood that it seems unfair, Yeah, but it's not when you think about the fact that there are so many things that your adopted child will need from you through their lifetime. And if you are completely oblivious to those, 
your child suffers, your child suffers. We had literal hundreds of adoptees on social media saying, that's what happened to me. Yeah. You know, my parents right. didn't know. They did the best they could, but they didn't know. And this right. is the consequence. So I think we go back to that really listening to what adopted people are saying. And yeah. for that point, families, I think will then realize, okay, yeah, this is yeah. more than just a moment in time. And, and knowing also, cause I'm living and breathing it right now, as soon as your kid is like at four or five and they start talking and, and, and having emotions, it's like, that's when the conversations start getting real heavy. They did for us. So I'm living and breathing that it's a lifelong journey. It is not the same as biological parenting. Your dinner conversations are going to be so different than your next door neighbors. Like, I, like sometimes I'm sitting there in in it, and I'm like, wow. I bet our neighbors are not talking about this right now. <laughs> and it can be heavy, but it can be so great and hard and joyful to hear my children talk about their needs and their wants and their grief and their joy. And, 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 you know, even last night we were talking about my oldest was like, well, if this and this would have happened, I wouldn't have been my sister's sister. And like to kind of go down those paths and leave those conversations open. Um, I think it's lifelong education and lifelong journey. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm just That's trying to put that in bold right now. So yes, bold that for sure. I agree. Every, every episode, right before we wrap up, this has been so good. We could talk forever, Agreed. but <laughs> <laughs> I like to leave our listeners with practical tips. Like I love the education and all, and all, but I need like a boom, give me a list. So I know I shared with you, I wish I would have done some things differently. But I kind of want to pause and encourage listeners, waiting adoptive parents, whether they're matched or not. Although it's important to show up in the right way during your wait, when you know better, you can do better. But there is also so much room for mistakes and repair in relationships. So please be encouraged that if you feel like you've been doing something maybe that should be be doing something a little bit different from this point on that that is okay. Um, So share with us a few tips you have for waiting adoptive families, a couple practical things they can do to turn their weight to an expectant and sort of joyful and hopeful time. I want to respond to what you said as well about just needing to give space to make mistakes because that's life really. But in this space, there's so much room for, I did this. It didn't work. I need to try something else. And in parent, that's literal parenting. I mean, no matter how you do it, that's parenting. So I think really practicing this idea of it's fine to make mistakes. It's fine to do something and it not go well, but it's so important to then follow that up and say, you know what? I I did do this and it didn't go well. And I'd like to try again. And I think practicing that with relationships you already have, if you're already parenting with your children, certainly start practicing that. I think if you're in a, a relationship practice that with your partner, um, practice that with maybe harder relationships in your life that you are not used to saying, you know what, I tried that and that didn't go well. And I want to try that again. Um, I think that's essential. So I do think, uh, yes, let's create some space for things to not be perfect. Um, and then I think practical tips for really getting through this weight 
Um, my favorite advice to give is to build a library. And I, I think any kid having a library is awesome. Um, but I think when you can really curate a library that's intentional for them, which includes books that are specific to families look different, who are you, confidence in your identity, um, and adoption. I think that's so important. We always say that the best way to tell your child that they're adopted is not to tell them. It's just to incorporate that into everything that you've done, starting from the very first things you do, which is talk to your kid at night. You know, you're in the rocker and you read him a book, make it a book about adoption. It helps you really perfect that language. I actually had a, a client that um, during their home study process, once they were approved, they started going on date nights every month, one time a month. They would go on a date, share the night together, and then they would end up at a bookstore at the end. And together they would pick out a book for their child's future library. And they would write a note in the cover that said mm-hmm. the month, like how far they were into the wait, and just a thought, something that they hope for their child for the future. And I thought that was stinking beautiful. And they That's had a so beautiful right. library by the time they brought their child home. And then they already had all of these resources to start those early conversations. So I definitely- My kids would love that. I'm thinking about my kids and their ages. Like, Sometimes if I just, I I think the teacher had us write a little note at open house and I found it in my daughter's room the other day. And I think we don't realize how incredibly important it and special that is for our kids to have some note that we wrote to them. Um, So that's a great idea. Build in the library. I love that. That's my best piece of advice. (laughs) I think it's also really important to take this time to build community because you're not going to get through this without community. And that means people who are doing the work as well to really get to a place of, mm-hmm. of competence within adoption. Um, it's not helpful if your closest relationship thinks that, you know, nobody should have openness because openness is really terrible that That's their ideas. Yeah. And their <laughs> ideas are just going to influence how you act. So really doing that work to connect to other people nearby that you can then have future play dates with. And, you know, so your child has this sense that they're not the only adopted person in a hundred mile radius. Yeah. Um, that's really important. Yeah, I agree. Um, I like that. Um, I think we need to do another episode because we have so much to talk. I say that to every guy. We have so much to talk about. We should do another episode. This has been so great. I've learned so much from you, Catherine, and so much from the stories on your podcast. And I'm excited to dive into your course. I'm excited for other people to dive into your course. So um, before we go, tell us how people can find you online, how they can sign up for your course, what they need to do next to start learning from you. Absolutely. So I, I want to just thank you for inviting me into your space to have these conversations. I absolutely love talking about this stuff, if you couldn't tell. So thank you for sharing your morning with me. Um, so you can find our agency website, www.absoluteloveadoptions.com. Our podcast is on there. We've got a lot of great blogs on there. And then our course, A Tale of Two Mothers, that can be purchased on the website to the number two dash mothers.absolute loveadoptions.com. Um, and then you can find us on social media at absolute love adoptions. Um, so if you, I'm also, I'm always open for direct messaging. I'm always open for emails. Somebody has something that they feel really connected to in our podcast and want to, um, share a story with me. I would love to hear it. That sounds great. And I'm not going to make everyone remember all the dots and the dashes. (laughs) We're going to put that in the show notes so they can go directly there. Thank you, Catherine, so much. I have loved my time with you. Thank you, Lacey.